series on spiritual seasons for the soul, uh, it occurred to me uh, that we don't just have four seasons here in New England. We were mapping out seasons of the soul of what does it look like to have a spiritual fall, spring, winter, and summer, Uh, but I realized that we have at least five seasons, at least five seasons here in New England. We have summer for all six weeks, uh, six days, six minutes. Uh, We have fall. We have winter high and low. That might count as two, right? But then we also have this thing called a mud season. And mud season happens right before spring. Mud season can maybe only last, you know, a couple of weeks. uh, But by the time we get to mud season, it can feel like an endless amount of time because after our long winters, we are tired of snow, ice, and gray skies. We want to get out there and to get busy. And nothing worse than to see that our projects that we have ready for spring are delayed as vehicles can't go up certain roads because of the mud, the weight limit on certain roads is posted, and yet again we are delayed. But if we have eyes to see, we can perceive that this season of the soul, this mud season, is really a time for preparation. We want spring And the problem is, we want it now, right? That's how it goes. And we have smart watches, we have Fitbits, and so we like to keep track of time. Our smart watches, our Fitbits, it keeps every second as well as every step is duly recorded. And we say, spring should be here. Spring is late. We even say that, right? It's not on time. But time told by a clock And the time measured by the heart can really be two different things, can't they? Sure, it's only six weeks, but when your heart is heavy and anxious, it feels like forever. My kids just had my parents in last week. When are Nana and Papa going to get here? They just can't seem to wait until that flight comes in at noon. You might as well think it was midnight, okay, by the time noon rolls around. When you think about time... Soul time is a lot more like silly putty. My kids were playing it with it here in the front row. Silly putty, what does it do? Well, it stretches out, right? It contracts depending upon what is going on. And in the mud season, time feels like it is stretching out, that it is sagging and drooping and wobbling almost to the breaking point. I wonder if that's what Christ felt like during his mud season of preparation. Each of those 40 nights, alone in the wilderness and hungry, did each night feel infinitely slow, wobbling, stretching out, sagging, dragging on? We know that as he goes through this time of preparation, the very next thing is wherever he walks, spring begins to stir and bloom. But until then, it's mud season with all of its virtues and lessons that we are hopefully going to look at and learn here from the man of all seasons, Jesus the Christ. Think about it. Christ wanted you to learn about this because it's only him and the devil, right? So how did we get this account unless Christ thought you need to see how close the temptations he faced are with the spiritual battle that we face each and every single day? So let me ask you, are you aware How aware are you that you have been tempted? 
the issue is not so much if you are being tempted, right? The issue is whether you are being tempted, whether you are aware of it. Hear me on this. Especially when you don't realize that it is happening, we are on the verge of wrecking our lives, right? Careless Christians can forget that life is war. Careless Christians can forget that life is war. We forget that we are in enemy territory. We can neglect prayer. We can neglect God's word. Because we don't understand that the stakes are so high, we can neglect discipleship. We can neglect even attending a local church because we don't really see the peril of our plight. It's just one week. It's just one Bible reading. What's the big deal? But Jesus thought the stakes were high. And so he teaches us here in Luke chapter 4 how to conquer our temptations for the spiritual fruit that is going to happen in spring. We think about kind of planting grass and all those tender little shoots. And at times, men, women, we rope off our yard so that our kids won't trample it, right? Because we realize how fragile those little blades are. And I'd like for us to think that on the cusp of God working in our life, on the cusp of spring, there is still this mud season in which temptation comes and all of your hard work can be destroyed if we don't take care of it well. So we're going to look at that. But first, let's see how Luke sets up the stage for us. Every detail is important. The first step of this season of preparation, this mud season, is that Jesus is affirmed as the Son of God. Look back at Luke chapter 3. You really can't read Luke 4 unless you read Luke 3. So Luke 3.22, Jesus is affirmed as the Son of God. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Father has spoken, the Spirit has anointed, and then fast forwarding in Luke, Luke chapter 3, look at how he ends his chapter in Luke 3.38. This is the end of his genealogy of Christ. Why does Luke put it there? You should see it in the last phrase. He's working backwards. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the first man, the son of God. Right? What is Luke doing? He's building us to realize that Jesus is a marked man. Heaven has opened to affirm that this is the son of God, and now hell is going to open to contest it. Notice how Jesus, in verse 1, is led into the wilderness, it says here, by the Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Gospel of Mark says that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. So already, we have a very important lesson for our daily Christian experience. Trials and temptations are a part of God's plan. If you think getting born again, becoming a Christian, being a Christ follower, all of a sudden insulates you from all kinds of temptation, we see Jesus the Christ being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But also notice that it's not just the Spirit who leads him into the wilderness, it's actually by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ defeats and fights Satan. Look at verse 1 again. And Jesus, what is he? He's full of the Holy Spirit, right? He's doing this as a real man with real temptations, and he withstood these temptations with the same resource you and I have. 
So Christ is not defeating all of temptations in his divinity. He is actually defeating all of these temptations in the weakness of his humanity. He's relying upon the same spirit that you and I have. That should encourage us believers with when you feel overcome, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel vulnerable. Oh, of course, it was easy for Jesus to defeat Satan. He was the son of God. No, here, he does it as an example for you and me in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he withstood them with the same resource we have. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's gone through it, he relied upon it in the Holy Spirit, and now he is able to come and help those who are also being tempted. And like Satan does to us, Satan hits Jesus at the most opportune moment. Right? Christ was alone, he was vulnerable, he was hungry, and so in that way, it is just like us. But in other ways, Jesus' temptations here are unlike anything we will ever experience. The setting for this temptation we see in verse 1, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And he's tempted for how many days? 40. All of a sudden, if you are familiar with the Bible, you would begin to recall that there's another group of people known as Israel, God's chosen people, who were in the wilderness and who also faced trial. And now we have Jesus in the exact same realm, the wilderness, and he's being tempted for 40 days. One day for every year that they wandered in the wilderness. And so right at the outset, we are learning that Jesus Christ is the true son. God calls Israel his son. He is also going to be the true Adam, the, the last Adam, the, the real man. He's going to be the true Israel and where Israel failed, Christ is going to triumph. He is representing a whole new humanity. So in one sense, his temptations go far beyond what we would ever experience. But let's learn from him how these temptations and how he passed them are relevant for our lives, each one after another. Israel failed in this first temptation. Temptation number one, write it down, self-gratification. Self-gratification it is really the desire to fulfill our wants apart from God's will. That's a big category. We all can relate that we want to gratify the nature of ourselves, sometimes apart from God's will. Look at what Satan says in verses 3 and then what Christ responds in verse 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Before we get to the physical element of turning bread into stone, would you notice that this temptation really starts off with the spiritual dimension? What is it? Satan attacks his relationship with the Father. Satan, right off the bat, wants to assault his sonship. Hear it again. If you are the Son of God, then why are you out here in the wilderness starving? How can this be the beloved God's will for your life? Is your father really providing and caring for you? Friends, isn't that Satan's strategy? His most diabolical strategy is to get you to put question marks where God has put periods. The baptism, you are my son. 
period. Satan comes along, let's question that. If you are the Son of God, I mean, could you really be going through this? How could a Son of God be fasting, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness? I think he's abandoned you. That gets at the heart of it, doesn't it? Every sin we commit is ultimately a rejection of God as our Father. As God, as the one who knows what is best for us, and that our God is for us, we we begin to doubt that and we move on. And so in the spirit of the Disney movie Tangled, yes, I have little girls. Father knows best, listen to your dadsy, okay? That's really, Christy, that was kind of an effort to, to get it tangled there, and Gracie all week has been wondering what in the world is this Disney movie doing in here, but Father knows best, God knows best, listen to him, that's the point. But the temptation is not really so much about the physical, is it? It's not really about eating bread is wrong. Unless maybe you're at the Golden Corral and you have seven rolls, okay? Maybe that, that is maybe overdoing it, okay? But here, it's really the way that he's being told to go about it. God the Son, use your power. Use your power in a way to care for your own ease and to care for your own personal needs. Provide for yourself. Do something for you. You deserve it. Jesus wanted bread, all right, 40 days of fasting. But you know where he wanted it? He wanted it with his father. That's where he wanted it, with his father in heaven. That's how he wanted to enjoy his bread. So I want to ask you, how do you handle your physical needs? How do you handle it when you're physically hungry? Do you become irritable and grumpy? Mistreat people and blame it on low blood sugar. Is there any physical need that God is simply not meeting for you? Whether it is what you eat or unfulfilled sexual desires, where are you seeking your own self-gratification apart from God's will? Know this, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus didn't live by bread alone, He tells us in John 4, 34, my meat is to do the Father's will. That's what he lives on. That's what he sustains himself on. In essence, Christ did not live for his own will, but for God's will. We learned this week at Pastor Pat's licensing council, and he nailed it. It was a treat to be there that Christ set aside his divine prerogatives when he became a man. He submitted himself to do the will of the Father. That's why he came. You guys know Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So would Jesus demand comfort and relief right now and distrust his Father's leading? Or would he take the path of humility and suffering that his Father had laid out for him, had predetermined for him? Friends, when Jesus was hungry, he trusted the all-sufficient, the all-satisfying goodness of the Father. Mark it down. The bread of Satan always destroys, but the will of God always satisfies. Jesus suffered, but he succeeded in this first temptation to gratify the nature of his flesh, something that is tantamount to all temptations. He passed. But the second temptation... 
comes right on the heels of the first. In the first temptation, the devil questioned, if you're a son, why be a servant? Don't serve others, serve yourself. But the second temptation, he says this, if you're king, why be crucified? If you're a king, why be crucified? Take the kingdoms now. Look at verses 5 through 7. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I, this is Satan speaking, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What an amazing exchange, okay? Somehow, he showed Jesus in a moment of time all of the world's flags waving in his honor with his name on it. He showed him in a moment of time all of the world's gates opening up to receive Christ on his coronation. But the irony behind it all is Jesus Christ actually had come to win dominion from sea to sea. Jesus Christ had come to win global dominance, but kind of in a surprising way, right? When Jesus came, he came to win the world through dying on a cross. Jesus was promised global authority by his Father, but he would get it through suffering. So now the bait was on the hook. Jesus, do you want to be magnified? Or crucified? Will it be a crown without a cross right now? Or a crown through a cross? Would you like ecstasy without the agony? We can get that, right? And all Jesus had to do was worship the devil. That's it. Now, despite how twisted this is, it was a very real temptation. Christ shows us how fundamental this is to our everyday life and how he responds. Look at verse 8 again. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Christ puts this temptation, number two, self-promotion. Temptation number two, self-promotion, to assert ourselves in the world and to rob God of his worship, right? That's what this temptation is all about. How are you going to put yourself first, promote yourself first, get what you want first, look out for number one first? And Christ defines all of that as an issue of worship. We would agree that worship doesn't just happen in churches, right? Worship can happen on a sports field. Worship can happen on the internet. Worship can happen in a car showroom. Worship can happen in a barn. Worship can happen even when you look in a mirror. Right? Worship is simply whoever or whatever you value most and you shape your entire life around. It can be money, it can be a particular relationship. It can be your reputation. It can even in church be your ministry. I wonder what you are tempted to worship aside from the Lord your God. Friends, this is what elders do kind of behind the scenes. 
is that we need each other as a band of brothers, whether it's on the elder level or on the church level. But we all have blind spots. And I had an elder point out to me that perhaps one of my idols, one of my worships, is what the church thinks, even of the ministry or the elder board. And there was a time when I told you that as an elder board that we pray through the church directory. And that is my intention in our elder meetings to pray through the church directory. But my friend said, Pastor, we did that once. How about we keep trying to do that before you make it look like that's what we do all the time? That's a good little, you know, eye-opener. And we need that because we all are tempted to promote ourselves, promote how things look. And it has been rubbing on me and rubbing on me for months. I think we were in the summer when my friend told me that. And it's been, well, how do I tell the church? Do I tell the church? And here I am, led to this passion. I just thought, wow, you know, you want to promote yourself in ministry, work hard at trying not to do that, not make it about one man. But there are times where that even gets the best of me with what I say and not always living up to it. So I just wanted to confess that as a way for you to see where we all tend to find our glory, where we all tend to find our worth, where we all are trying to make something out of ourselves so that you would think better of us. It's a worship issue. So Satan whispers in our ears, hey, Josh, you can have that now. You can have everybody thinking well of you now if you do it my way. You know what my way is? It's an easier road. You just say it. You don't do it. But guess what? It's a dead end. It's a dead end. Friends, hear this. Satan is all for you in your goals. Maybe even more so. As long as you'll do it his way. Be aware of Satan's schemes. You think you have a plan and a goal. Satan, oh yeah, I'll help you get that. Just do it my way. Worship me. Russell Moore, I can't improve on what he said. Listen to this quote. Jesus refused to exchange the in-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation of the snake. Jesus chose to live a life of suffering obedience to the Father instead of sinful submission to the snake. And in the end, after the crucifixion, all authority on heaven and earth was given to the Son, but it was given to Him permanently by the Father, not the snake. Oh, to confess our sins of self-gratification, confess our sins of self-promotion. Our final temptation here is one of self-protection. Self-protection. Self-gratification, get my wants my way, self-promotion, make me look great. How can I have all these kingdoms, people bowing down to me? Last one, self-protection, to live by sight rather than by faith. Look at verses four through nine, or, uh, 9 through 11. He took him to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of a temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan wants Jesus to jump from the pinnacle, and he even quotes scripture, Psalms 91, to authorize it. Here's a point. The devil can even be in the pulpit. Don't trust what you hear unless it's checked by scripture, even at faith community, Bible, church. The devil can wear a suit. 
So he quotes scripture, he misquotes it. It does say those things, but it doesn't actually say when. And so what is this point? What, what is this temptation? Christ is defeating Satan because Satan wants him to force the circumstances. Satan would like Christ to free fall from the pinnacle of the temple so that it would force God to show his hand. It would force God to do something spectacular to prove that this is the Messiah. Satan wants to tempt us. Here's how it connects. You guys ready? This is a tough one to get, so just don't miss a sentence. It's technical. Christ isn't, or Satan wants to tempt us to believe this, that we can only interpret God that we can only trust God through our circumstances. Here's how it goes. He pokes. If God really loved you, he'd let you eat from any tree in the garden. You know, if God was good and caring, circumstance, you wouldn't be suffering right now. Church, do you let your circumstances control your view of God or do you let God interpret your circumstances? That's a tough one, isn't it? My circumstances interpret what I think about God or does God interpret my circumstances? It's a very real temptation. All of us are tempted to interpret God through how our life is going right now. You know how this most naturally shows up? Putting conditions on God. I'll follow God if. You know, it's really a desire to protect yourself. It goes like this. I'll be a Christian as long as things work out a certain way. As long as I have a satisfying marriage, as long as I have a fulfilling job, as long as I have good health. Friends, what conditions are you placing on your loyalty? And if God doesn't jump to show a sign that he really does love you, then what are we tempted to do? Complain, murmur, groan. Would you have ever thought that complaining, the Bible calls that testing God? Would you ever think that your simple murmur, groaning, complaining, frustrations is actually testing God? Let's see how. Luke 4.12. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the... Jesus is again quoting from Deuteronomy. This time from Deuteronomy 6.16, where Israel complains about having no water. They're in the wilderness, and they're going to put the Lord to the test. Exodus 17, 7, they go, is God among us or not? All based upon what? Their present circumstances. We have no water, therefore God has abandoned us. How do I view God? Based upon my present circumstances. No water, therefore God who has promised covenantal loyalty never to leave us or forsake us, he must have broken that, he's a liar, he's gone. How do we do that? Well, we use our comfort, our safety as measures of God's character. God's good when things are going great. God's amazing when I'm safe. But he must not be here when we have no water. 
he must not be here because I'm not married yet. He must not be in this ministry because our ministry isn't growing yet. You see how we begin to look at our circumstances and have a view of God? Friends, your circumstances do not reveal what God thinks about you. The cross reveals what God thinks about you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. You could work through the whole New Testament and say, what does God believe about me in all the cross references? That's what he really feels, thinks, believes about you. Christ did not need a special sign to interpret the nature and character of God. In fact, Jesus, in the very worst of circumstances, was able to rest in the shelter of God's unshakable security. When was that? Not on the pinnacle of the temple, but on the cross. Jesus did put his life in the Father's hands. What did he say on the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And on Easter Sunday, God did prove, did show a sign to the world for all to see that this truly was his son by the resurrection from the dead. So Christ really did trust the Father, just later on the cross, and God really did want to prove that this was his son, but just later through the resurrection. Friends, the ultimate victory over Satan wasn't one in the wilderness, it was one on the cross. It is on the cross that Christ ultimately bore the wrath of God. So now Satan has no more accusations against us. It has been paid in full. If you're new here, as a guest, we would want you to hear that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. That's good news. He has canceled the record of your debt by nailing it to the cross. And the devil has been mortally wounded by Christ's death and resurrection. His days are numbered. But Satan has shifted his efforts away from Christ to you. Right? So what does this account have to do with you and me? Let's close with two lessons. First, you must be wise to the strategies of Satan. You must be wise to Satan's strategies. You are being watched. For over a millennia, demons are customizing a spiritual attack for you. They notice what turns your head. They notice what quickens your pulse. They are marking your weak points to crucify you just like a Roman soldier feels around for the vein in Christ's arm. And they are waiting for that opportune moment to strike. But if you're our guest and you're not a Christian yet, at this point in the sermon, you have got to be irritated because you're saying, wow, I mean, are we going to get this long into the sermon and you're still not going to address my million-dollar question? Pastor Josh, are you saying that in 2019, you still really believe in a devil? I can't take it any longer. I mean, this whole time you've been assuming that I believe that. Can you please address it? This is not a personification of evil. This is a real person. The demon, demons, and the devil are real. They're created by God. They were originally created good, and they rebelled against God. Now, we can err on either side. We can either begin to see the devil behind every little thing and attach a demon to it. There is a raven demon because the Patriots lost a couple Sundays ago. 
there is a fried ice cream demon because I went to bed with indigestion after Grace's birthday party at Margarita's having fried ice cream, okay? No, there's not a demon behind everything, okay? But we also can get to the place where I think us as an American church, where the other air would be, we minimize, we forget, and we say nothing about the spiritual war that is going on, and we completely ignore him. Either way, you see him behind every corner, or you don't ever talk about him at all, Satan goes, gotcha. His strategies are as numerous as the stars. So what do you do? That's really comforting, Josh. What, what do you do? James tells us. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Everyone wants to quote, resist the devil and he will flee you, but what was the first part of that? Don't ever quote, resist the devil. This is not for you to go out there and to say, I'm going to attack the devil. No. How do you attack the devil? Submit to God. That's the first step. Submit or we will fall. Second, we must be armed with God's strategies. There are three. First strategy that the Lord wants you to use is the word of God. If Jesus didn't think he couldn't handle life without knowing the Bible, do you think you can? If Jesus didn't think he couldn't handle life without the Bible, do you think you can? Did you notice how Christ responds to each temptation? It is written. Verse 4, verse 8, verse 12, it is said. Three temptations, three scriptures. Man doesn't live by bread alone. What's the rest of that verse? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Even under great stress, the agony on the cross. What is coming out of his mouth in the wilderness? Scriptures. What is coming out of his mouth in the cross? Scriptures. If you pricked Jesus, he bled scripture. That's it. It oozed out of him. So we have to ask you, how are you doing in this area of your Bible reading? What is your strategy for reading the Bible? I don't have one. May this be an occasion to remind you that if Jesus battled Satan with the Bible, do you think you can battle Satan without it? Read the Bible every day. If you've never done it before, read one chapter a day. If you've never done it before, read the Bible with us. We have a ministry called one-to-one -one Bible reading. It's as simple as it sounds. We meet together. We read the Bible. What, is, what do you think that said? What does it mean to you? And we'll teach you how to read this. We understand that this can be a complicating book. Not only is the size intimidating, but there's like 66 little books in there. How does it all meet? Tons of opportunities in our country alone. If you really hunger to get to know this, are you short on resources in America? Do you have any excuse? Okay. Gather your manna every morning. Yesterday's bread, Sunday morning bread, will not feed the laborer during the week. Give your best to knowing God's word. Second, notice that Christ was full of the Holy Spirit. Just wanted to hit on this quick, quickly. When Christ defeated Satan, he was full of the Holy Spirit. It's encouraging you to be full of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that when Christ responded to Satan's temptations, he said man does not live by bread alone? He didn't say God does not live by bread alone. He's wanting to identify with you. He's wanting to say, I'm right there with you. I'm hungry. I'm starving. But man, you and me, we don't live by that. We live by God's word. And he's giving you an example of what does it mean to be filled with the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says that if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't have time to go into that sermon, but if you'd like to know more of what does it really mean to be filled with the spirit, 
come talk with us. That's what discipleship's about. Walk with us. We'll share it with you. Last, the people of God. If Jesus survived alone in the wilderness, does that mean you can? If Jesus survived alone in the wilderness, does that mean you can? He went to Satan. My kids are learning Spanish. Mano y mano. Man to man. You think you can? Friend, do you have any genuine friendships with any other believer? We call that discipleship here. Can you withstand the assault of the devil one-to-one? Satan tempted Christ, but it was a little bit different in this regard. Christ was only tempted from without. He didn't have a sinful nature from within, right? He was born sinless. So all of his temptations came from without. Where do yours come from? Within and without. Think you're able to do this one-on-one? Lone Ranger Christians get picked off by the devil. Will you take this occasion to push in to a spiritual friendship for your spiritual good? Would you press in to a local church? Perseverance is a community project. Commit yourself to a church. Pastoral oversight. That's why we have elders. We, why we put before you Don George's elder. If you don't know Don George, his testimony is online. It's because we need more men and women who are willing to help shepherd the flock because there is more shepherding, there's more discipling than Pastor Pat and I can do. And so we need more people that are willing to get into the harness and say, yes, I will help somebody and point them in a spiritual direction for their good. If you're here, Don wants to help push you towards Christ. That's what every elder wants to do, every small group leader. It's all because we believe we are a counter-revolutionary force against Satan. Our closing hymn is, He Will Hold Me Fast. When we feel vulnerable, when we feel overwhelmed, when you think this is all up to you, the last phrase of our hymn says, till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. You have to have a community of believers to keep your eyes on the prize. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until he comes. Let's keep our eyes focused on who that Christ is and who will complete it as we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast.